You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. Today I'm talking to Beck Hill. She is someone very, very frequently requested uh, by you, the listeners. People mention her all the time in the Facebook group and uh, I get emails about her all the time. So I was very pleased to finally track her down. Uh, if you don't know Beck, she's most widely known, I think, online for her some of her flip chart videos. We'll talk about them a little bit. Um, and uh, she's a big fringe act as well as being a club comic as well. I think she's she's most widely known for her stuff at the Fringe, in which she has some of the best and most dynamic poster art you're ever going to see, um, and has been going up there consistently, uh, doing lots and lots of really good, uh, wide-ranging shows. She's um, She likes to get a theme and explore everything about it, and she's a big concept person, uh, as well as just a very warm, and as you'll hear, I mean, just an enormously socially radiant kind of person she really loves people and that seems to motivate a lot of what she does there's 20 minutes of extra material from this episode available at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders in which beck and i share some very private stuff about what it means what success means to us and she also talks about her response to someone a very new comic on the circuit pinching a very specific aspect of her work so lots of that at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders uh, this now with thanks to the cheese comedy club in bristol for the loan of the recording space this is beck hill one of the questions i asked on the podcast facebook group for listener questions yeah for you. yeah yeah and there were there, there were lots of kind of hints of running jokes and stuff. You yeah. clearly have a rich relationship with your fans. <laughs> People were like, ask specifically about this, you know, which is lovely. Um, and there's some of them we may get onto. But I wanted to start. A couple of them made reference to. I think a couple of people said, um, "Ask her how come she's so awesome." And then someone like <laughs> ten questions down, someone was going. Uh, don't ask her how she's so awesome. Oh, no, go on, ask her how she's so awesome. And oh, I wanted so I to see check... my fake accounts are yeah. <laughs> Well, my question is, is that, a, um, is, that, is that a running joke about awesomeness? No, that's really surprising. <laughs> in, in that case, let's start, and I mean this, like, let's actually look at the question and what it means and what you think of it and what it means to you. All right. Beck Hill, yeah. how are you so awesome? I don't think I am, though. Like, um... I wouldn't call me awesome. Why do you Why do you think people ask that? Why do you think people people clearly objectively think that you are awesome? I I think that because I think they um, 
I reckon maybe they relate to me and I perhaps for some people represent something that they like on stage and so for them that is awesome because it's something they like about themselves or I don't like like when it comes to nerd based stuff or geek based stuff or anything like that like um I attract geeks to my shows even if they're not necessarily into the same things I'm into because when you're into something like when you're passionate about something that makes you a bit of a geek uh, and I'm uh, I'm a geek about certain things I'm a dork like I'm very happy to be openly a dork and what, and is it, what does a dork mean to you as distinct from a geek or a nerd right so I'm a dork and I think a dork is um, I'm very uncoordinated in Australia we call that unco yeah, I'm familiar with that term yeah yeah and um, um and awkward and I'm really fine with that like I think everyone is and I think the more you try and hide it the the less cool that is because you've just got to be open and honest about who you are so um I am not ashamed to talk about doing embarrassing things or saying embarrassing things um because that's my life like that's and if I let it get to me then I would just get eaten up by by self-doubt and and horrible things all the time in fact i'm gonna go off tangent immediately um i was making a comment recently on twitter because someone you know how you always see those um comic strips or tweets where people talk about a waiter saying like oh enjoy your meal and then you say you too and then yeah, sure. and everyone's like oh that's so awkward i just want to die and they're like oh i woke up at 3 a.m and remembered this and i'm like oh my goodness like get over it that happens on a daily basis. Like, my sort of thing is, and it was something I admitted to on Twitter, I was on a tube and uh, going to the airport. I had all my luggage with me and I was so tired. It was really early in the morning and it was really busy tube. It was like rush hour. And I stood there on the tube for ages just waiting for a chair. And, you know, you, when you've got all your luggage, you can only get that chair that's right next to the, the bit where there's space for luggage. So I stood there for ages waiting and then... Um, and then finally, the, the, um, at a stop, the woman who'd been sitting in that chair, who just beat me on as well when we got on, but like I was, I've now been in Britain so long that I didn't say anything. Um, she finally stood up and, uh, and I got really excited. And I went to go sit there. And as I went to move, a woman who just walked on the tube went to sit down and she had her back to me. And I just went, I'm, excuse me, sorry, I, I've been waiting for ages to sit down. And she looked at me and her back was still sort of to me. And she just went, oh, like, as if, like, are you serious? And I was like, well, sorry, it's just like I've got all this luggage. And, and you know, and she went, fine. And she turned around and she was heavily pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, had the badge on and everything. And I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. And obviously, like, she's tired as well. She's like... She's got stuff going on herself. And she just went, no, 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 no. No, you wanted it. You have the seat. <laughs> and I was like, no, no, I couldn't see you pray. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. No, you take it. She's like, no, no, no. I And then she like doubled down. Oh, I'm like, shit. Because obviously like she's been waiting to snap for something. I, yeah. I get that this wasn't purely all me. Because if, it, you know, otherwise it would have been a, but I think I just, I, I've obviously hit on something. Sure. And, and she was like, no, you have it. And then she stood up and stood in the little vestibule bit with me, refusing to sit down. And we both just stood there like, and I was like, well, I'm not, I, no, no, please sit down, please. She went, no, and she went a big shoulder and walked further down the carriage. And then everyone was just sort of staring at both of us. 
as if like staring at me as if to be like why did you start a fight with a pregnant woman and staring at her as if like to say like why aren't you sitting down and then and then it just it was just so awkward and we stood there and I was so horrified at what had happened and the idea of upsetting this woman who's who's got her own life and own stuff to worry about and I was so upset about upsetting her that I started to tear up and I was like I'm gonna cry I'm gonna cry on the way to here and I spent like the next seven stops just trying to hold back tears like just standing there and I woke up the other morning just remembering that feeling and I was like do you know what saying you too to a waiter who says have a nice meal nothing that is <laughs> okay. nothing okay so I think you have to own those those we all do things that we don't like or uh, are awkward or dumb and we make mistakes because we're human and we're faulty and and I think it's important that we own them and understand that we're all like that and I think that's where the darkness comes in and I think there's a lot of other people out there who share that so dork in the sense it. of like an awkwardness yeah yeah as opposed to like a series of interests like in my mind like okay geek like the difference between nerd and geek is is to do i'm not so even sure idea, what that is, this is Go yeah, on, what's your, what's your take version. on that all right so i think a dork is someone who's just a bit more you're not you don't necessarily have to be smart or anything you're just like uh like a like you a labrador out. a labrador's a dork i okay, think you know okay, when they're gotcha. like bouncing around sure. each other and fall over their own feet that kind of thing um uh, then a, a geek is someone who is passionate about a specific subject. Um, you can have like music geeks, you can have comedy geeks, you can okay. have uh, obviously sci-fi geeks sure. and stuff. Nerd, I think, is more academic. So yeah, nerd okay. is when okay. you're like, uh, like a maths geek I would also class as a nerd because like they know sure. a lot about something. I think when you're a nerd, it's because you know a lot about something that's useful. Whereas when you're a geek, it's not necessarily useful information. Okay, okay. And I think all three of those categories, do you think what proportion of your audience sit in one of those three categories? Oh, that's a really good question. I would say mainly geek, Say, but I would say that a lot of geeks are dorks. <laughs> sure, <laughs> Because okay. for you to be that open about something that you love and are passionate about, there's usually an element of I don't care what you think of me Yes, kind of thing. It's and a I- weird confidence because it's not, it's not a like, everybody look at me, I'm amazing confidence. It's a confidence of this is who I am and, and I'm cool with that. Is, is there an element of your persona? No, I don't mean your persona. I mean, is there an element of your brand mm-hmm. which does have an element of look at me I'm amazing oh yeah because I I think one of the reasons your audience are attracted to you is that you look like the one of us who has managed to become a superhero (laughs) do you know what I mean (laughs) that's that's the best compliment I've ever (laughs) (laughs) you know what I mean like the way you the way you kind of weaponize looking nerdy about arts and crafts and kind of beautiful (laughs) and zappy and exciting. Do you know what I mean? Like all of your, anyone anyone just needs to, if anyone listening to this doesn't know Beck and thinks I'm laying it on (laughs) thick, just look back at the last 10 years worth of her posters. You've kind of gone for like the one with the bubbles was that last year or the year before? Yeah, that was the coolest one I think. Beautifully lit, super cool. They look like kind of, uh, kind of like, not even pop stars isn't the right word, but they look like album covers by oh. someone who is like, oh, I'm one of those auteur people that just believes in themselves more than you could possibly imagine. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I do. I think, um, I think what I like about, like, let's focus on images for a second. I think what I like about posters and images uh, and photo shoots is that's the moment where you get to be who you want to be. 
Like I, I would love to be like a, like a sort of superhero, rock star type person. I could never keep that up full time, but I can keep it up enough for a photo shoot. <laughs> sure, that's interesting. I see photo shoots as an awful moment where I have to come up with a thing that doesn't. I just can't think of it. I don't think visually <laughs> like that. It's I regard them as a huge chore. Yeah, like I spend all year going. Oh, wouldn't it be great if I had a cool idea? <laughs> and then yeah, I don't have yeah. one. But you really. Like, that's a lovely way of thinking about it. This is my opportunity to be who I want to be. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then I think if you can convince enough people that that's who you are, then then you, you, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> I love that idea. I love that idea. Because you you then are... And I, I've, I've seen a preview of your forthcoming show, I'll yeah, Be Back, which yeah. is, you said no spoilers. And I was yeah. like, that's an odd thing to say, and now I understand. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that is... And again, I'll tread carefully so as not to sort of spoil any mm. specific elements of it. But it is a show in which you get... It's almost like the show version of that concept. Yeah. You get to be what you are. You are gleefully yeah. romping around some concepts which are very clearly very dear to your heart and very dear to your audience's hearts. Yeah. And you're kind of switching through lots of different versions, almost like... Do you know what it reminded me of a little bit? was yeah. uh, the Lego movie. Oh my gosh, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because it's like this and this and that. I never thought of that, but I love that because that is the the Lego movie is one of those films that I watch going, oh, I feel this in my heart. Yeah, right, yeah, okay. This is inside my head. Sure. So I'm glad you said that because that means it's coming across the way that I'm, I'm feeling it. And do you think then that an element of your uh, your sway with your audience, the kind of uh, the pull that you have on your audience, is that you are simultaneously a geek and a dog and a winner i see i don't know if i'd ever identify as a winner because i think in in i i don't know i think i don't i wouldn't say i'm competitive in and i feel that a winner is someone who's competitive because you don't win unless you're competing but um maybe it's more like Heroic, like, then. Yeah, Some, do you know what I mean? Something like, like that. Something superlative. It's like, I can imagine people, like, and I'm sure people commented along these lines, I don't have the, the specific words in front of me, but about someone said, you, you make me feel, Beck makes me feel really good about my own geekiness. Oh, good. Well, I, I, I don't, I wonder, when you say it like that, it makes me, so when I was in high school, I was, um, I, I wasn't, I wouldn't say I was one of the popular kids, um, but I had a friend in every group, in every circle. So, like, I had um, friends in the music geek group and I had friends in the... Um, there was, like, the cool... Um, I lived in a very Italian section of, of Adelaide, so, like, most of the students were either first, second or third generation Italian. Um, and there was, like, very cool Italian guys that were, like... Um, they loved Juventus and they, you know, followed football and all this sort of thing. They, they're really into it. I had a couple of friends in that group. I had, and so, like, if I felt like eating someone's nonna's, you know, pasta, then I would go and hang out with them and get fed at lunchtime. Or if I, um, uh, yeah, if I wanted to sit inside because it was raining, I would go hang out with the music geeks because they'd be sitting in the music room uh, listening to albums and stuff. Or um, or I'd go and hang out in the multipurpose room where the um, Dungeons and Dragons guys hung out and, and I would see what they're up to at the moment. Or I would, um, you know, go and sit. There was, like, the popular girls. But what I loved about um, the final year of high school was that's when, like, it starts to strip away 
about what's important. So the popular girls were also the girls who were like um, the prefects, like the ones who were actually doing stuff around the school, the ones who were going and talking at charity events and okay. and getting you know people together to clean up the the river nearby on weekends like that kind of okay. thing they were also ma- majorly hot but like well, I was gonna say, were there, they were, were good looking too yeah. were there any other group were there any groups that you didn't hang out with were there any kind of what I would think of as like sort of malevolent groups yeah so you know there mean? were like a couple the, like well by the end of by the by the last year of high school a lot of them had dropped out cool yeah okay but there were like going through the years, there were a couple where there were groups where I was like, oh, I don't really have anything in common with those sure. ones. But yeah, like um, I usually had a fr- at least one friend in each group, and it meant that I could sort of, if I had a class with someone who, and then it was lunch, then I would usually end up having lunch with their group and just finding out what's. I just love people. I just really like people, and I think people are really interesting and fascinating, and and more often than not, like just beautiful like i i just think there's i love that's why i love geeks because so often they're into stuff that i have absolutely no idea about like i didn't go to uni i didn't study anything further past high school and i've learned so much just from sitting with people and watching them and listening to them and oh i just think people are great was I'm just any, so proud of people. Was anyone else? I don't, I don't doubt it at all. I think that radiates from you. Like reading, I read some of your reviews from like previous shows and it's impossible to read a, a review of you. Even like a three star that didn't go, totally go for it is like, oh God, it's impossible not to like her. Joy radiates off her. Do you know what I mean? You, you have one of those kind of qualities whereby, and I, we'll, we'll maybe come back to this, but sometimes something I get uh, that I'm not necessarily thrilled with is like, Oh, you, you feel it every time you see Stu Goldsmith, you just feel with confidence. You're like, this guy knows what he's doing, which is it's great. It's nice that I inspire confidence in people. I'd rather they said, I, it was so funny, I shit my pants. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, right. like, it's almost, it's, there's an element where you kind of go, thank you for pointing out again a quality that I have that isn't how funny I am, because yeah. that's the one I'm after. I'll tell you what, though, Donald Trump, terrible president, lots of people like him. He's gotten very far because of it. <laughs> so what I'm saying is if everyone, you know, did a review of Donald Trump on how, what a great president he is, yeah. terrible. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. He's, he's still president. Apply that to you then. <laughs> so I think that's why I'm a comedian. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Like I, I'm, I know I'm not the best, um, I know I'm not the best comedian if we were going to like look at um, gag rate or um, marketability things like, like really if you were going to just sort of boil it down to um, a, a traditional Jerry Seinfeld type comedian that's what gag, it is hit rate kind of yeah put them in a comedy club anywhere they'll be fine like that okay. that isn't necessarily I'd love to be able to do that but uh, it's it, it's going to be a, a long time of learning <laughs> But um, in the meantime, I'm really enjoying myself. And I think that, thankfully, that's enough for some people. And also there's a few things that I cover that I just think ring far truer to some people than others, which is it. And that's enough. I always say to people who are starting comedy or people who say, I could never do comedy or I always say doing comedy is just about finding your audience. That's it. You're like, you've just got to find your audience. And that doesn't mean that you're a good comedian or anything like there's a lot of a lot of people who are classed as comedians out there who i don't think they're good comedians but they have an audience that that's all you need is an audience who say you're funny and then you're a comedian i've got enough of people saying that for me to technically be a comedian (laughs) 
So this is Beck. She's so <laughs> she's just really in love with life. We're going to talk about that a little bit more uh, about her love for people uh, and also her faith and how that figures in her creativity and uh, whether it does figure or not in her self-critical voice. That's something that always fascinates me when people have a faith. I always think I'm quite jealous of anyone that has a faith because uh, you know it's just good software, isn't it? If only I believed in anything. Now, <laughs> more from Beck in a moment. Uh, I'd just quickly like to, to repeat my thanks for the uh, the Cheese Comedy Club and specifically Tony Quixote, who has been in the UK for a couple of years now. He's from Portland in Oregon. Very, very funny comic indeed. And uh, he is someone who came over to the UK. I maybe mentioned this at the time. I'm not sure. He pretty much came to the UK because he was so excited about the scene over here in large, in no small part, shall we say, uh, due to this podcast. So uh, he's someone who is very dear to the Comedians Comedian podcast and uh, the community therein. I was also contacted by someone representing the Bristol comedy scene who wanted to wish Tony well uh, as he is popping back to the States for a little while, but I, I'm fairly sure he's coming back soon. I really recommend The Cheese. If there's comics listening to this, you get the opportunity to try and work there. It is underneath a building in, uh, I guess, quite an old part of Bristol, and uh, it's more usually used for uh, punk gigs. It's like a tiny, it's got, it's got a very fringe feel to it, very low scene sort of like the top half of a cylindrical tunnel. If you, that's just a regular tunnel, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> so it's a tunnel. Um, but uh, really, we went on, Beck and I both, to uh, perform uh, at that gig uh, after the recording of this podcast, and what a wonderful room it was. And hey, Katie Pritchard was on as well, and I hadn't seen her before, definitely one to look out for. Uh, I think she's taking stuff up to Edinburgh this year, but uh, really fun, uh, funny, clowny, singy, don't know how to describe it really, but it definitely is uh, up my street. So uh, look out for Katie Pritchard, as well as myself and Beck, who will both be at the Edinburgh Festival this year, if you're going up. Uh, links to those shows currently in the show notes. So we'll get back to Beck in just a second. You know the Soho dates are coming up at the end of this week. Uh, that's the, I'm going to say, 9th, 10th and 11th of May. Just off the top of my head without even checking. That may not be right. It's Thursday, Friday, Saturday this week. So if you're listening to this right now and you're a contemporary London person, you'd like to come and see End Of at Soho, then please do that. And that is, I think, everything. If you're after the Insiders Club, you know it's comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. And all the links that you need are in the show notes as per usual. Right, post Amble at you afterwards. Uh, and I'll mention briefly what happened at the Secret Welsh Festival just this, gone, uh, just this weekend gone. Uh, but for now, let's get back to Beck Hill. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Do you think the anxiety works its way into the material? Um, I think rarely. Uh, I, did a, I did do a show, sorry, I say that. I did a show called uh, Ellipsis, um, which was... Uh, the, the premise was 
the pre- I, this is dated now. Our premise was I met Dean Cain, which unfortunately has made a, a, an embarrassment of himself on Twitter now. But um, I, do, I missed he, that. Okay. Yeah, don't look him up. He's very Republican. Um, uh, he, but I, I met Dean Cain, but was very drunk, and I introduced myself as an award-winning comedian, and I hadn't won an award. Um, and so I decide that I need to win an award so that I'm not a liar to Superman. Gotcha. Um, okay. So that was the premise of the show. But then throughout the show, my um, inner, my self-doubt um, constantly calls me on a tin can and string um, to... Uh, so you hear this voiceover. It was Phil Nickel, actually, in the show. Um, and he basically heckles me each time I try and start something... Um, which was also a really good way of just like changing style of like changing mm-hmm. into a new chapter of the show. So, um, so there was a bit where I was like, oh, I need to do more observational humor. So then I have like a whole bit that's dedicated, but it was like with a wheel, you know, like those Wheel of Fortune type wheels. Mm-hmm. So it was with a wheel and I'd spin it around and it would land on a thing and I'd do observational material about it. And then I'd keep doing that until sort of, you know, for about 10 minutes and then the phone would ring and it'd be self-doubt telling me why I'm bad at observational material and why the stuff I've done isn't good. And then, oh, maybe I should do something that's more close to my heart. And so I would talk about, I had some material that was about being Christian because uh, there's still a lot of people out there who don't know that that's a, a part of me. And so I had a little bit about that. And then he comes in and he interrupts that and tells me it's shit. And then I go on to the next bit. And so... And the whole show was just me trying different things and being told constantly that I am not good at that. That is not my style. That is not who I am. And, and is that a fair representation of a, your own battle with anxiety? Yeah. With, with, self, with self-doubt, with self-criticism specifically. Is it as constant as that when you sit down to make some work? How, and, and I suppose I'm asking, how has it changed or has it changed over, say, the last 10 years of your career your the the conversation with your own self-criticism how do you deal with that now how have you dealt with it in the past it's a really good question because when I started out I reckon I was far more confident like so much more confident I used to try so many different things and like with reckless abandon and be like yeah this I used to put so much effort and it was when I had a full-time job I have no idea how I had the time to do it because nowadays I'm like I don't have time to try new stuff but I remember having a full-time job. I remember when I was still based, when I was in Melbourne. So I, I started in Adelaide, moved to Melbourne. And I was in Melbourne and I did a, a cabaret night. And, um, and, uh, and I, I made this whole bit for it. And part of, the, part of the set was I came out with a blender with a wig on it. And her name was Brenda and she was my new girlfriend. And... Um, and then there was a song that was really, really big in Australia where the um, chorus went, um, uh, when I, was it, would I be so bad if I could turn you on? When I kiss your mouth, I want to taste it. Turn me upside down, don't want to waste it. Like it was this like fun little 90s or naughty song. It was very popular. So that, I played that and then when it would go, would it be so bad if I could turn you on? I would turn on the blender and like and start making a smoothie, and then it, it ended with me like 
like the blender had these big fake lips on the on the thing it ended up with me like drinking out of the blender and pretending to make out with it and then like giving people in the audience like smoothies and stuff and that was it like there was no punchlines it was just me making a smoothie but pretending it was a woman it was so strange but I remember and I never did it again but like I remember being like I could try this out see if this works sure yeah the kind of the the manic almost the manic confidence of the newbie yeah who knows who knows what I'm best at yeah exactly it's exactly that you're just sort of like throwing darts at the wall and hoping one of them hits a target like it's it was so strange and um and I and I a couple of years ago and it was around the same time I was writing the um self-confidence one was it was a moment where I was like oh I feel like I've lost my sense of play of uh, my sense of like and I realised it coincided with when I went full-time into comedy because suddenly it was my job. And suddenly, um, if I don't get gigs, then I don't live. <laughs> like, I, I don't have food, I don't have rent. So there was this pressure for it to be of a certain quality so that I would get paid and I wouldn't miss out on things. And that meant that I stopped taking risks because I w- because if it failed, then I ran the risk of not getting booked again hmm. so I, I started to get a lot more regimented um, and I noticed that a lot of my shows have become uh, very heavily scripted to the point that if I didn't hadn't learnt my set before I went on stage I would blank if I couldn't remember the next bit wow and okay yeah and then that got really got to me and then it was from touring with Sarah Bonetto I remember touring with Sarah Bonetto another Australian comedian and I remember watching her one night and um, she's got some great jokes but what really stuck out to me is just how calm she seems and just chill to just go with the flow of the evening like she wouldn't necessarily go on knowing what material she was going to do she just knew she had the material there in her head and she would do it and then if someone chatted instead of like that throwing her or her you know, sort of, ha huh, and then moving on, she would sort of almost like, not necessarily invite a conversation, but she sort of would envelop them into this. And I, and I just remember thinking, oh, I need to loosen up because this is so enjoyable. It was so nice watching her do that. And, then I, and I've since noticed a, like a lot of other com- comics that I really like also do that. And I was like, oh, if I'm going to get good, I need to learn to not worry so much about not knowing where I'm going because I'm not a strong improviser and um and so I uh, I started to do more and more gigs where I hadn't written out my jokes word for word where I just like bullet pointed them and I started to let myself take notes on stage I used to think it was very unprofessional to do that but I started to realize it was a necessary evil to so that I wasn't um as uptight about making sure it was perfect and then I felt, I realised with that looseness, I started to enjoy myself more and I started to, um, I'd, it's interesting because more recently I feel like I've forgotten how to write jokes. <laughs> like okay. I swear I used to sit down and write them and I don't know how I've done that. Um, but in its wake I've also found this um, more playful, it still terrifies me so much but like that's why and and the one thing I'm, I'm happy to to talk about is that in the show that you watched the the video of um which i'll be taking to edinburgh is that there is some improv in it yes and 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 
Is that the, the you mean specifically the section at the beginning? Like I do to, a Q and A. Yeah, yeah. You open with a Q and A. I open with a Q and A. Can you can you let us know the premise of that, or do you want to? Yeah. Oh, so that like the premise of the show is I went to the future and I've come back, and then I say to the audience, "Has anyone got any questions?" And then I just try and improvise. And you really went for ages. Yeah, I know. You? And do you know what? Because that was the last show of the run, and by okay, that stage okay. I was feeling much more confident. Uh, okay, okay. But like, cool. but it, but because I remember I um I watched it again recently, and I was like, wow, this this. It goes on for a bit, doesn't it? <laughs> no, not, but not in a problematic way. I was watching it thinking, oh, this is because it's a preview. You're building material by asking questions about stuff. And then you kept going. I went, oh, no, I think this is this is part of the, the structure yeah. of the show is just yeah, to be yeah. that loose. Well, it's, um, the other thing that helped me, uh, and again, this is a big thing I remember, is um, so probably about four or five years ago, I had a preview for, might have even been Ellipsis. It was one of the shows. I had a preview and um, I know a lot of comics do the same. You, you start writing your jokes on post-its so that you can play around with the running order and work out what fits where in the show. And I had them on my wall and I had a preview with Jim Campbell and I was running incredibly late and I didn't have time to, I was meant to write them all out in my notebook so I could go through them and I didn't have time. So I just grabbed all the post-its off my wall and jumped on the tube uh, and got to the preview. And when I got there, I was so puffed out, I put all the post-its on the wall behind me and then I just said to the audience, uh, uh, this is my show, I haven't put them in order yet. Um, just yell out what joke you want to hear first. Yeah. And, and so we did it that way. And then afterwards, all these people went... I love the posters thing. That's really yeah, interesting. Yeah, great structure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I was like, oh no, no, that's just that was just like a, a thing. And then I, I so I, but I kept doing my previews that way because I kept finding that when I left it to the audience to choose the jokes, different running orders meant that I found, order, uh, an order to the jokes that I wouldn't have necessarily naturally gone for, and it meant that I was able to find callbacks or or foreshadowing or things like that that I wouldn't have naturally done myself. Mm-hmm. And so I really, so for uh, several years I did that. Yeah, it must have been like five years ago now. And so for the next couple of years, that was how I previewed every show that I wrote was I would use post-its. And then every time I did it, at least one person would come up to me afterwards and say, I love the post-it thing, that's so different. And I was like, oh, no, it's not the show. It's just how I brainstorm, it's how I workshop. And then in 2017, um, I was like, Oh, that's the show. This Is was out of order, and that was out of yeah. order. Yeah, okay. and that was and the whole and that was where I just took the post-its with me, and then meant that every show for the entire month had a different running order every day, and that really kept me on my feet. And it also got me used to having the audience yell at me and me feel safe and go, okay, "Oh, that's yeah, cool sure. that they're yelling out because I've invited it." You've controlled the circumstances of the thing you're afraid of. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So. What about the the relationship to the critical voice throughout those different formats? Oh, I just bury it really far down as much as possible. <laughs> <laughs> it still creeps in occasionally as well. Where I'm like, ah, oh, this is probably a terrible like. Nope, don't think about it. No, nah, just just bury it. Just bury it deep down. I'll probably kill someone one day, and everyone will be like, "Where that?" You know how on the, whenever there's a big murder or something, and someone's like. Oh, it doesn't seem like them. They were really, they seem really nice. They're super upbeat and positive all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I yeah. mean, that's a red flag as far as I can Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. So, and, and I mean, in a, in a genuine, um, like that is, that's, that's a way of dealing with self-criticism is to ignore it, move yeah. on, try and create, try and overdo things. Is there, or not, not necessarily overdo things, but try to be so busy mm. making 
sometimes I think I deal with it through um, and it comes back round to um, other people. Um, a lot of the people who come and see me or who, who I converse with on social media um, have so many of their own anxieties and, and things holding them back and yet they're so talented. Like there's the, some of the people, they're, they've either got... Even if I don't know them that well, you know how you can just tell that someone's like... The, either they're very compassionate or they're very... Um, and compassion is so needed in this world. And, and you just... But you sense that there's something there or they're... Or they are like they're a brilliant artist or they're... You know, but something's holding them back. And I see that and it, and it, it angers me in a way where I'm like, well, you should believe in yourself. There's people out there with less talent than you who would who are doing great, and I don't want to take anything away from them. But if they can do it, you can do it. Like I just, and then I think when I see that in other people, then that's how I deal with it in myself. Because there's that, then there's like the opposite of your self doubt. There's that little self esteem voice that goes, you know, you should be taking this advice, and then you're like, mm, fine. Yeah, if I have to. Yeah, and I think also if you're. You, it's very hard to tell people that they're worth something if you keep telling yourself that you're worthless because why should they take why should they believe you if if you're putting it out there that you're not good those like why should they trust your opinion yeah absolutely if your opinion of yourself is wrong both both of those sort of systems of uh, of picking yourself back up connecting with other people and kind of having some perspective and going actually if I'm going to say that to them, you know, I'm also, I'm part of this equation as well. Mm. Those sort of ways of feeling good, they're both kind of very sort of useful, um, flexible mental health strategies. Is there, is there an element of your faith that comes into your work, oh. that comes into your treatment of yourself whilst making work? That's a real, um, I don't, no, not so much about my treatment of myself. I think my faith very much comes in to giving uh, weight to the voice that says you should care more about other people. Like, I, the funny thing is I am actually incredibly selfish and that's, that's why there's that element of, like, that's where that little bit of superhero confidence comes out in. Like, those photos and stuff, like, there's enough selfishness in me that goes, like, yes, I deserve this photo, you know, like, I've earned this. And, and yes, people should pay and watch me on stage. I do have uh, crazy... I mean, you could argue that with any comic, but, like, low self-esteem and incredibly high self-esteem and far too much. Um, and I... Uh, I, I'm so selfish that um, I found... Because I came to faith later in life and I found it really helped balance me out. And I think I was... Um, uh, I could have gone to become quite a, a not nice person. I think I could be quite manipulative and quite mean. Um, That's quite a specific thing, manipulative. Yeah. Why do you get that sense from... I was a really manipulative kid. Like, re- I knew what I was doing. Like, okay. I was really... Not like to the point. I'm not like you, you know, cause any Damien anyone off the balcony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't do anything like that. But I just it went unchecked, and I know that had it had I not curbed it at any point, it could have. You know, when you see those people who uh, who are so full of themselves and so unwilling to give time or thought to other people, and and they end up in positions of power, and you're like, how? how did you ever reach this point and think that 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 that's okay 
And I think I would have been one of those people because there was nothing there. And then uh, the faith kind of came in um, and very much... I think the time I feel it most is when I am in situations where... Um, where I know I could do more and I don't want to... Like a, a classic example, walking down the street past a homeless person and and um, y- you know that you can just walk past and pretend you didn't see them or hear them or you've got your headphones on or whatever. And um, I don't, like, I'm, I'm not going around saving people. I'm not, like, sitting there and chatting with them. I wish I... I, I would love to say that I was, but I'm not. Um, but it is that the faith is that thing in my head that as I walk past them, that little bit of guilt just goes, hey, that person's a real person. So maybe just like make eye contact with them and take your headphones off for a second. And just, even if you don't have change, just say like, hey, I'm really sorry, but like have a nice day. And like, look at them in the eye, like give them a moment of like, oh, I see you. You're not invisible. Like you, you are an existing human being just the same as everyone. And that's, that's where the faith comes in. Just little things like that where I think I would find it very easy to ignore other people. It's the faith that helps me love other people and see other people because if it weren't for that, it would be uh, a lot harder for me to listen to that voice and a lot easier for me to just ignore it. Does that have a bearing on your creative life as well? Uh, yeah, yeah, it does um, in terms of the fact that I try very hard not to I try and stick to certain morals and that isn't to say I I succeed all the time um but I I like I personally don't like to do any material that someone in the audience is potentially going to feel very upset or uncomfortable about um that isn't to say like I can be very dark and very morbid sometimes but I'm always trying to be on the side that isn't going to necessarily set off someone's PTSD or you know or make someone feel um, like they're the butt of the joke when maybe they've been the butt of the joke for their entire lives. There's, I've got nothing to win from that. That is, if someone's life has been a punchline, then then I'm not hashing any new material by continuing that stereotype of them being a punchline. That's not new. That's not brave. That's not taboo. That's a joke that's been around forever. So I try and either look at things that aren't being tackled or completely just go right you've come out for fun you've come out as an escapism so let's do that let's have some fun let's let's just look at the silliness of life and just take a moment to go oh yeah I forgot sometimes this is just it's just there's no we don't have to think about anything just have a laugh and and feel good um that's very much comes from the faith I think yeah when did you first get a, a sense of your niche? Do you do you feel that you have a niche in terms of the kind of geekery? Like I remember probably mm. the first poster of yours that I remember was, if you're reading this, my cape fell off. Oh, wow. That, that is show. the first poster. Is that the well? first one? That's okay, yeah, one. right, okay. Yeah, good memory. Um, that's, uh, yeah, well, I remember it very vividly. Um, I, I feel like it must have been 10 years ago. Yeah, it was, 2009. Oh, very good. I I do also have access to the internet, but I don't don't believe I looked that (laughs) up specifically. But I do, I remember remember that one, because that was a very, Mm. and again, was that your first show? Yeah, yeah. So that was a very confident image. And the fact of you having that kind of joke written on your the back of on your sort back. of superhero you can leotard, see my face, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It yeah. meant that, you, from what I remember, you had a very distinctive 
you know, short all, haircut. All of your haircuts are very distinctive. They're very, they're very. I don't mean distinct. I don't no, mean distinctive. No, I, they're no, very no, intentional. Do you yes. mean you? You've thought, and that's what I think. One, one of the things really works about your imagery, and I hate using the word branding, but though you know, your the mm. public image is that it's very intentional. No, you know, you didn't do any. None of these details are. Accidental. I love that you said that because um, that's what I. So the haircut in that one was very short because I'd actually shaved it off. Um, uh, for charity, whatever, no big deal, kind of a saviour. Anyway, um, I'd shaved all my hair off. and Just so it was giving an... it to homeless people. Yeah. <laughs> Have my hair! And when I had that photo taken, it was in a very awkward position of not being long enough to do anything with, but being too short. Like, okay. like it was just in that weird position. Um, so that is interesting you say that, because it wasn't intentional, it was just where it was at the time, it was as long as I could get oh, it. I'm cutting this bit out, I hate yeah. to be proved wrong. No, 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 but I love that, you, because also in all the other... Um, like there's a lot of posters where like um, my hair's really messy and we just did that in the during the so many of my posters the photo comes about because that's just what happened in the photo like I go in with a very distinct idea of what I want and then the photo the, the moment it changed because I there's a there's a group of posters where they're very um, on theme so so you can read this my cape fell off um, there was one called uh, Beck Hill didn't want to play a stupid game anyway where I'm in the middle of flipping over a Monopoly board yeah um, and then there was one called Becky Hill's More Afraid of You Than You Are of Her, which was also about my fear of audience interaction. Okay. Um, those three are very intentional in terms of, like, how I wanted the look. Not necessarily the haircuts, but the look. Um, after that, there was a moment where um, uh, I got given a, an hour-long slot last minute. I wasn't going to do Fringe, and then someone dropped out, and Karen Corrin was like, I'll give you the room for free. And I was like, yes, please, you know, because who doesn't sure. say yes to that? Um, and so I just had to whip together a show of an hour long of material that very last minute and it was called Beck by Popular Demand and the poster was a photo we didn't use from a previous photo shoot where I've got face paint on. Okay, was and that the, those streaks? Yeah, the with the streaks, kind of yeah, which yeah. I think you used for the gig that we're doing together <laughs> yeah, later. It's very, um, and, and that poster got so much feedback, of like positive feedback and that's when I went, oh, oh, it's just because it's a good image oh, you just need a good image. Like, you don't need... It doesn't need to have anything to do with the show. It can just be a, an eye-catching image. Yeah. And so after that, um, uh, I would go in to... I usually use Steve Olathon, and I would go in to have photos with him, and I would say, this is what I want, and he'd go, okay, but you brought, like, changes of the clothes and stuff, and I'm like, yep. So we, we would get the one that I want, and then we'd do that really quick, and then we'd just muck around, and I'd, like... Uh, you know, mess my hair up, or I'd uh, jump up in the air, or um, tie, thing, so, tie things to your hair, or ribbons around exactly, your face, stick, or stick tape in my claws hair, out of highlighter pens and stuff like that. That's right. Yeah. The, the claws of the highlighter pens. That was totally just uh, like mucking around sure, with some sharpies. Sure, sure. Um, and then uh, the bubbles one was just. I realised I had a bubble gun left over in my bag from doing kids stuff, <laughs> and so um, my um, wonderful makeup artist Emma Rankin, she shot these bubbles in the air, and I tried to eat them, and the the. Sh- he got that shot where yeah, it looks like I'm great. like breathing out fire bubbles or something. Yeah, like, yeah. And yeah, so um, since then, all the photos used for posters have been ones we weren't planning on, but they were just in that shot. And then we were like, that's it. That's the one that looks the best. So we were talking about when you first hit upon your, not so much style as genre, that mm. kind of like, oh, because that one of like your first, your first show, if you can read this, my cape fell off, mm. says capes, superheroes. Yeah. You know, 10 years ago, I guess that was, Avengers was just starting, right? Or MCU was just starting. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, that. Um, well, I mean, I didn't see the show. I don't know about the no, superhero no. content of the show, but I remember thinking that person's got an angle. Yeah, I, why did I do it about superheroes? Um, I remember thinking this is my first show. Uh, no one knows who I am. No one's heard of my name. So it needs to have a theme. People need to come because of the theme, and then they'll, if they like me, they'll keep coming. So I was like, I've got to go in with a strong theme because that's what people will buy tickets from. Uh, and I, um, I've always been fascinated by superheroes. Um, and I, I actually, had, what it was is that um, when I started comedy, I had a, uh, I was lucky enough to have a mentor. It was a guy called Justin Hamilton, who's. Um, oh, I yes. know Justin. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So he, he was my mentor when okay. I started out, and he was amazing, and. Um, and I flyered for him in his first, uh, uh, sorry, not in his first, I, my first comedy festival experience, I flyered for him doing his show. And he, um, he paid me, but also he gave me some David Bowie albums, which I, I never owned. And so that well, probably put me onto a musical endeavor. And, um, and he gave me a bunch of, uh, he gave me a bunch of Alan Moore stuff, Neil Gaiman stuff, um, and a few other graphic novels. Okay. And, uh, and I'd always been interested in superheroes, but from more like a samurai pizza cats kind of <laughs> angle, like more childish cartoon okay. type stuff. And and he just gave me all these graphic novels and I just like absolutely tore through them. And then, um, so I was very early in my interest of that world, but I found it really cool. And so I was like, right, there's a theme. Let's build on that. But it needs to be a theme also that you don't have to be a superhero nerd to get it so then the whole show was about um how to become a superhero okay and so it was done in sort of chapters and like uh, how to find your superhero outfit how to find your superhero vehicle how to find your superhero sidekick and were those then the chapters then led to stand-up uh yeah so we and then i sort of shoehorned in bits of material in okay. each one um that show also had my first ever flip chart ah um, okay okay which was um uh embarrassing now now that i've talked about how i don't like punching down um and there's a reason i don't do this on stage anymore um just just because i think it could be slightly misconstrued it's not horrible but it was um it, it was a superhero called lazy eye man and he's a genuine superhero but he he has a lazy eye and um uh he's been dubbed lazy eye man by all the other superheroes he's um so that's how he has to identify and he catches this supervillain, and uh and originally it was going to be that I sort of played each character and sort of, like, talked to myself, like, in Izzard style. But then I was like, oh, how would I, like, show that he's a lazy eye superhero? So then I drew them as two stick figures um, talking to each other on, on the flip chart and then I sort of just pointed at each one. But that didn't work because you couldn't tell who was talking because I can't do accents or anything. And so then... I gave them moving mouths and the moving mouths meant that even though the voice was the same, you knew which character was talking. So then it was, and the whole thing was Lazy Iron Man's like, oh, I've caught you now, Monocle Man, and I foiled your plan for world domination. And then Monocle Man's like, oh, I'm sorry, I missed your speech then. I was too distracted by your eye. And he's like, okay, can we not make this about my eye, please? Like, I've worked really hard as a superhero and I need you to not bring this up right now. It's very disrespectful. And then Monocle Man's like, 
well, no, it's just, no, like, I, I do respect you. It's just, like, I'm, I'm not sure which eye I'm supposed to be looking at and I don't, <laughs> that's why I'm trying to be more respectful because I'm not, I, I, I don't want you to be put off by the fact that I'm looking at the wrong eye and lazy eye man, look, we've gotten off the wrong foot here. And then they, like, and then they just, it just gets more and more awkward and it just ended up with lazy eye man going, and that, that was the end of the sketch <laughs> with him sighing. And then um, it was missing something, and so then I worked out a way of making one of Lazy Eye Man's little stickman eyes just move from one side of the face to the other. Okay, really okay. slowly, and sure. so I just added that, and that was that was the the end of the bit, which um, which yeah, which I stopped doing because I was like, oh, am I just making fun of people with lazy eyes? So I, I did eventually get rid of that, but um, but that was the first first flip chart bit i did and it was i realized it wasn't necessarily the con like the the uh i've forgotten the word the thing that's in stuff content yeah <laughs> can't wait to say context next year's show yeah. the thing that's in stuff <laughs> <laughs> the content i realized isn't what was getting the laughs it was the the engineering it was the the surprise of something happening that they weren't expecting to see yeah. like a magic trick and so that then meant okay now I know I, if I play around with paper and give it different moving things, if I work on the content and make that stronger, then I've got two things going for it. So that was, yeah. You then grew into yourself as a paper engineer. Yeah. In, in that you, you're doing stuff that, I mean, I've watched YouTube videos of it and go, I don't know how that's done. Yeah. Because, you, you know, because you've obviously you know, got into the minutiae of how to control things on a flip chart. And you bring up the fact in the new show that you, uh, and I'm doing air quotes here, peaked at the Edith Piaf one. Yeah. Like it's your yeah. most viral one. Yeah. It's huge. It's nearly half a million uh, views, like yeah. proper views, YouTube views. Mm. Um, and uh, it, that was a huge thing that then you, you made loads of ones since then. Yeah, it feels like that's not just you. You're not just knocking yourself. There is an element of truth in the fact yeah. that one of them went super viral. You have a, you seem to have a core of fans who love that stuff. It, do you get enough return for the huge amount of work that goes into those? Um, yes, in a sense that like it still keeps me um, going, and people still like to see the new ones. Like they might not be as viral or popular as the Edith PF one but that doesn't mean that people don't still go like I there's one in the um there's one in the new show I don't mind if this is a little bit of a spoiler um but there's there's a light in it that that comes on and every now and then I hear people go (gasps) (laughs) just just a little bit of a guy because they weren't expecting a light you know sure and um uh and I just I love that in um in my last show I had one about uh Elon Musk yeah and um and there's a bit where a rocket takes off and I blow into a tube while the rocket's taking off, which shoots talcum powder at the bottom. So it looks like it's smokes. And, sure. and again, you get people going, oh, <laughs> I just love that. So I don't mind so much if they're less viral, but it still has that. I, I'll just keep going until people stop going, oh, like, I just want to do that on each one. Are you aiming for them? When you're making each one, is part of you thinking this could be the next massively viral one? Yeah, yeah. I've, like, I've, I've thought about it so much. Um, the funny thing is, the Edith Piaf one, I remember, I remember as I was, uh, when I thought of the idea, the, the concept for it, I was like, I think this will probably go really 
viral because it's a song that a lot of people know but don't know the lyrics to exactly. Like, it's just got the right elements of yeah. something. That and the know. mishearing the lyrics and, you know, that's yeah. like that's almost like another, a whole other strata of comedy within the... Yeah, like, that's already a thing. Like, misheard yeah. lyrics is already a comedy thing. But to then um, link it up with how I visualise it and then on top of that, the little surprises of how yeah. certain things move yeah. and stuff. Um, it's a really nice combination. I remember doing it um, at a gig uh, maybe about a year or two later and uh, and it was at that moment I'd made a couple that just hadn't had any impact like online, like just no one was going from, that's fine, they're still ones I'm happy to use on stage but they just weren't getting the same feedback and um, and I ended a set with Edith PF and this woman came up to me and she said, that Edith PF bit is so funny and I said, oh, thank you, I'm a, I'm a little bit worried um, a little bit worried I've peaked. I don't think I can do better than that. And she just went, oh, yeah, no, you can't. <laughs> and, I, and I knew that she meant it as, like, a compliment, but I was like... This can't be I beaten <laughs> by you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, oh, okay, cool, because I thought my peak might be bigger. Yeah. But I didn't realise that was it. <laughs> um, and so, uh, uh, yeah, I do sort of mention that in this, um, in this upcoming show, and part of it is trying to um, uh, come to peace with that potentially being the case, is is that you mentioned before when you started using Twitter? It you I, I imagine you didn't specifically say this, but it felt like you um, you had some ownership over it. It was your little corner, mm. and then it became massively popular, and people started using it differently. You didn't really own it in the same way. Yeah, with the paper craft stuff, the flip charts. Mm. Do you? Is there part of the joy of continuing to do it is that you still own that territory? Like, oh, that's 100%. your thing, right? Yeah, yeah. It's funny you say that. There is, um, there's, an, there's an act, um, uh, a new act on the circuit, who I, I emceed his first gig. And, um, and ever since that, he comes to my shows and, and um, he's really lovely. And every time I see him, I ask him how his comedy's going. And he... Um, he was getting really excited and he came and saw my show. Not, oh, was it this one? I can't remember. He came and saw a show at Soho Theatre last year. And afterwards he said, um, I said, how's, how's the stand-up coming along? And he said, oh, really good. I've started using flip charts. <laughs> and, I, and I went, oh, cool. Because I was like, well, I don't own flip charts. Like, Dimitri Martin does flip charts. Sam Simmons uses flip charts. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. people use flip charts. Like, that's, that's fine. That's not. And I was like, oh, cool. Um, and, then, uh, and then a few days later he comment i can't remember what it was on my facebook page he commented on something and he posted the video of his set and i started watching it and it was very funny he's is um still finding his feet but like really he had some absurd like some lovely surreal absurd stuff which i i love it's my style of humor and and i was like oh this is just so much he's come so far from the first gig i emceed of his and i was really um like really happy for him and then he brings out this flip chart and, uh, and I was like, oh, that's a very similar setup. To, like, it's, a, it's an A2. It's not like a, the sort that Doing Mount or anything is. It's like an A2 sketchbook uh, on a very similar easel. With tabs it? coming out the side. Yeah. Oh. Do you feel like a success? And do you anticipate the next 10 years are going to help you keep feeling like a success? Ooh. I think... Um, I feel I, I definitely feel like a success in that I have to keep reminding myself about because as I said I didn't go to uni so all of my day jobs when I was supporting my comedy habit 
were uh, like entry level stuff, customer service stuff. That's all I'm really properly trained for. So um, it's either doing what I do now or answering emails and, um, you know, getting paid minimum wage, uh, being very tired all the time. And so um, I do feel like a success in that I'm not having to do that anymore and I have to keep reminding myself even in the bits where I'm like, I feel tired or I don't want to do something or whatever, that this is a really privileged place to be in my career. That said, I've got so much more to give. Um, I think what I like about my followers and it's interesting how you're saying this about your audience as well, is um, they never seem that surprised. Like, they're just supportive. So if I said, um, if I said, like, if I said, oh, I'm doing, uh, um, I'm doing Stu Goldsmith's podcast, they'd be like, yeah, yeah, of course you are, yeah. Like, you know, they're just like, yeah, we've, we've, we have come to expect this, which is really nice because it, it feels like, oh, I've earned this. All right, I should be here. I'm where I'm supposed to be. That's nice. Um, I find the rest of the comedy circuit, I'm always surprised by um, uh, people. I'm always surprised when I find out people have different ideas of me and what I'm doing. So um, people, uh, constantly, other comics are constantly surprised that I do glees. <laughs> like I do weekend glee gigs. I've done, I did a Christmas one, which wasn't my favourite, but like, you know, I do Birmingham, Cardiff and, and Nottingham. Um, and they find that they're like really surprised because it's a it's a club it's club weekend but I can do clubs like I'm just because I talk about having a niche and everything like sometimes my audiences are in clubs and that's fine Um, so I can do those gigs and I really enjoy them and I like going back to them Um, so people get surprised that I've just and I think I can say this because they announce it uh, this coming week so you should be safe but um, I'm I'm in a play that's um, going to be um, for all of June with uh, the wonderful Felicity Ward. Oh, awesome. And, um, and it's one of the... She's, like, the main character, but I get to be, like, one of the other main characters. <laughs> and um, and when I... There was a couple of acts who I told um, because they knew I was going for the audition and stuff, and when I got it, I told them, and, and they went, I didn't know you act. And I was like, that's, like... It's just... Like, I was in a... Um, in 2014, I was my, the only lead I did for a short film uh, ended up winning the Sundance Grand Jury Prize. Like, I'm, I'm all right. Like, I'm not, saying I'm, I'm not saying I'm amazing. I'm not saying I'm the best. But, I, like, I, I'm, 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 when I do do stuff, it's because I know I can or at least yes. I think I can enough to think it's okay to have sure. a go. And, um, and so I find it interesting because my, my fans and followers or audience members, when they... they see me do stuff they're like yes i expected this of you because you're always doing new things and surprising us but it's it's other members of the comedy community who go ah oh, ah oh, because they've they've all they've just all they know of me is um edinburgh fringe shows flip charts and and do you think do you think that that is a, do you think that you are perhaps a victim of your own niceness like your your <laughs> lack of I'm a star, dickhead, bullshit, social media, here are all my successes. But I think I do do that a lot. I think I do. That's why I'm surprised when they're surprised. Because okay, I'm okay, like, fine, I'm pretty sure enough. I brag a lot. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think I, I don't. Wait until I properly announce this play. Yeah, sweet. 
listener and comedian Tony mm. Cowards says, oh. as a fellow pun enthusiast, I'd like to know whether Beck has any coping strategies or techniques for minimising or dealing with the occasional groans that sometimes happen with punning jokes. <laughs> like, you, so you started, you co-started a night called Pun Run. You're yeah. a big pun person. We haven't spent a lot of time on that. I personally have no love for puns. <laughs> but... I've got bad news for Tony. And that's as someone who has booked him as a headliner many a time because he's an incredible uh, pun artist. Um, and that is I created Pun Run because I found the puns got groans too much in parts of shows. So I created Pun Run so that I had a place to do the puns. In order where to ghettoize puns, yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> okay. just to, to vent them. Like, it's a purge for me. Okay, but okay. But very rarely do they end up... Like, I do have puns in my shows, but they're so hidden amongst... Like, flip charts. Most yeah. of the flip charts are wordplay, but because there's pictures, people are far more forgiving. Oh, God, I've been tricked into enjoying puns. That's upsetting. <laughs> Murray Head says, Beck always has a lot of different sorts of things going on. How much of that is preference, how much survival, and how much strategy? Oh, that's such a good question. I've got some pretty sweet listeners. And we out did there. sort of, ta- we sort we, of touched we've, we've on that. We've touched on a, a lot well. of that, but like, uh, just to, maybe to round us off because we are, we are mm-hmm. out of time. Um, so let's, let's finish on that one. All of the different stuff, and you have a huge amount of things going on. I know you, we haven't talked about doing the fan cast for DC. Oh, yeah, yeah. You did, you've done presenting, you're in clubs, you're touring, you're doing flip charts you're doing all sorts of stuff. So how much of that is survival and how much is strategy? So I, I probably touched on it slightly by talking about how I see my, my life a bit like a stream. Um, so uh, most of it is um, uh, surprising things that happen <laughs> that just occur to me and then I'm like, well, I've got nothing else on, so yes. Um, so a lot of it is just by um, dumb luck. Um, in terms of that's where my life seems to be going. But um, kids' comedy I started doing because um, Comedy Club for Kids asked me to, doing, to do it. Uh, I, a, a lot of my stuff is actually as much as, ch- as childish as it comes across to adults, it's actually very not appropriate for children. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. And, um, <laughs> and people don't realise that until they listen specifically thinking about that and then they're like, oh, yeah, she's not appropriate for children. But I kept getting asked to do it and then I was like oh, maybe I should try have a go at writing a kid's show. So Tom Goodliffe and I did a double act. So we wrote for that so that we could just sort of have a go at it. It went really well. Um, and then that sort of uh, ran its course. But then I kept getting asked to do Beck and Tom and I couldn't because um, Tom's gone on for his own adventures. So I was like, right, I will do more solo stuff. And then I started writing solo stuff. And now I get booked for so many kids' gigs doing that that I've been able to turn down the grown-up gigs that I know will be horrible (laughs) and so that is a sort of survival-ish type move because I love doing the kids gigs but it also means that I can enjoy doing my adult gigs as well so yeah it's sort of a a bit of everything great question so good are you happy yeah yeah most of the time I I I think um if I, whenever I'm fully a hundred percent like content, I don't get anything done. But so I would say I'm not content, but I'm really happy. I'm just thinking way. I'm just thinking my way through that. When you're really content, you don't get anything done. You get a lot of things done, so you're not content. Yeah, because as soon as you're content, like why would you want anything to change? Well, maybe you're content in creating art, or content in traveling, or content in doing things. Like, I have moments where I'm like, 
like um, I got to go to Hong Kong last year to do kids stuff and adult stuff and Hong Kong's my favourite city in the world and I remember having a moment where I just stood there and I was like I'm so content right now but also I knew it wasn't going to last because I couldn't I would have to go home and maybe that was part of the reason I was so content right then and there because I knew it was it was temporary thanks Pat <laughs> thanks for having me So that was Beck. Thank you so much to Beck for coming along. And we did go on to talk... Oh, I'll, I'll chat about in the post-amble what we talked about afterwards. We turned the mic off and then, as is often the case, had a little additional chat. Um, so I will share that with you in the post-amble, uh, as well as some regret about a little social joke that I spent all my time doing <laughs> over the last weekend. So that's all of that to come. Thank you very much to Beck once again. Thanks to Tony Quixote and everyone at the Cheese Comedy Club. Uh, in Bristol for the use of their space and for his help in putting this interview together. And thank you to Peter Dobbing, podcast consultant, Nathan Wood for uploading and editing the show, and Jake Crossland for the logging. That's the whole team, I guess. Oh, Rob Smouton for the music. That's the, the most regular team people. Um, and that is that. I, uh, I will post Amble at you now. But next week on the podcast, Josh Whittacombe returns live at Mac. It's a cracking episode. Uh, half an hour on process, some, half an hour of really nerdy writing process stuff, and then half an hour of salacious celebrity gossip. Uh, so that's one to look forward to next week. Um, and upcoming guests this week include Russell Hicks and Andy Parsons. I'm recording with both of those on Friday. So if you're in the ComCom Facebook group, by all means, tag me there and uh, post your questions for Andy Parsons and for the exciting younger American comic Russell Hicks, now resident in the UK, and really committing Russell is to uh, uh, a very risky, improvised-ish Phil K kind of a wild style that has uh, it's been a real pleasure to watch that develop. Can't wait to talk to him. And of course, Andy Parsons, who you'll know intimately from many, many series of uh, Mock the Week and uh, several... Uh, solo shows besides and Parsons and Naylor which I feel like I remember from I mean probably 20 years ago now in Edinburgh so lots of stuff to come on there chat uh, questions for them in the Facebook group and uh, more information coming therein soon about other future guests right I'm recording this uh, in a tiny office room with uh, my jumper over my head to uh, attempt to deal with the echo. I suspect it's not very good. But my point is, I'm hot. So I'll post Amber at you quickly and then uh, speak to you soon. Bye for now. Yeah, proper recording setup. This I'm going to have to bring my little memory foam box now to this office. It's like a what it what it uh, what you get from this space in uh, privacy and efficiency and not having babies in the background. Uh, you you lose in uh, the sound quality of it being a tiny echoey room. Hence the jumper on the head. It's a lovely green jumper. Uh, I wonder if I could describe it to you from a recent poster. I feel like I've read it. I feel like I've. Uh, Worn it in promo, but you'll just have to imagine an emerald green jumper. So just a quick a quick post-amble from uh, beneath this uh, knitwear. Um, two things. One, I had an additional line of questioning uh, to Beck because there was a thing she said, and I, I didn't feel like I could say it deftly enough. I didn't want to risk uh, it coming across wrong on the podcast, but we spoke about it afterwards, and I thought, ah, oh, rats, I should have recorded that. Um she made a passing reference at one point to the fact that, I think possibly because she uh, never went to university and kind of got straight into creativity and comedy, 
whether that has anything to do with it, I'm not sure, but I feel like she, I don't remember the exact words now, but in that interview, she made a passing reference to a sort of sense of, well, what else can I do now? You know, I, I can't do anything real. I'm a comic. And I wanted to kind of point out to her socially afterwards, as much as I would love her to keep performing, and of course I don't mean it to sound like, hey, you could do other stuff. I just think it's important that we all remember we can do other stuff. That's, it's very, I think to succeed at comedy, you need to, you need to become obsessed with it. It needs to feel all encompassing. And that can often go hand in hand with a sense that 10 years in or more, you sort of think I've configured my whole life at this. I've become obsessed with it to the exclusion of everything else. I can no longer do anything else. And without wanting it to sound at all like it was me dabbing with faint praise and saying, hey, you could do something else, you know. I just want to remind us all, no matter what you're doing in life, no matter how long you've spent doing it, you can always do something else. There's a whole world out there, particularly if you're a comic or a creative person of some sort, and you've ended up feeling like you are a long way away from the real world, initially by design, and then perhaps in a way that you might occasionally regret. The real world is out there constantly, all the time. We spend a lot of our time telling ourselves stories, archetypalizing about, um, about this, this profession, and I'm sure other artistic ventures. I'm sure all ventures are the same. Probably if you've been working in investment banking for 20 years, like Cindy V was, you tell yourself, well, this is it now. This is all I am. It's never all you are. Your work is not your worth. That's a separate thing, but I like that sentence. Your work is not all you can do. It's not your only option. And change is... <laughs> I mean, this, how can I possibly complete this sentence without sounding like some kind of pamphlet or worse blog post? You know, you can change. It's only a, it's only a decision away, isn't it? You can just go, I'm going to try something else. The bravery, the, the courage that you exhibited when you first set out on whatever journey you're on, comedy or otherwise, you, you still have that courage. You're still capable of that, and um, you, the hypothetical listener struggling with the idea of change that I've just invented for the purposes of making this point, you're completely capable of it. You can do anything you want, and even if it feels like you can't, that's only that's only ever the result of of decisions you've made and decisions you're telling yourself you've made. All of those things are mobile. You might say, you might be thinking, "Oh, come on, look, I'm I've a single parent. I've got no money." Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the more I say this bit, you know, some people have got it really tough, of course. But you can always work towards something. You can always make subtle, small changes in an attempt. I know single parents, just to continue that example, I know single parents with no money, uh, with more than one kid who've managed to become a comedian. Who was I talking to? Oh, gosh, um, really funny actor. Uh, I saw her at a show, uh, an off-the-curb gig somewhere I can't remember the town or her name that's pathetic isn't it I think I was really babyfied at the time but she'd done exactly that so um this is getting increasingly <laughs> layered my point is you can always change you can always do something different with your time so I just wanted we, we spoke about that a little bit afterwards and I thought oh that was a fun bit of the conversation I wish I'd recorded it so that's me stumbling my way through it acceptable Barely. Right, second thing, by way, this is by way of a confession. So I've broken my thumb. I'm not confessing about that. I wasn't drunk. Uh, I was sober as a judge at seven in the morning and I fell down my stairs. My stairs are very shallow and they don't... I mean, a, a, surely a step on a stair should at the very least accommodate a human foot. 
Um, my family are much smaller than me, and their their comparatively tiny feet seem quite comfortable mountain goating up and down those steps. Um, but my galumphing size tens are apparently too big for whoever built our house. So um, uh, I I slipped. I just it's been it's been in the pipeline for a long time. I knew it was going to happen. I slipped and I tripped and fell from the top of the stairs all the way to the bottom of the stairs and landed pretty much entirely on my thumb which regular listeners will remember is the thumb that I broke four years ago at the Edinburgh Festival, had it x-rayed at Edinburgh Hospital, who then told me, no, it's not broken, you're fine. And then six weeks later got in touch to tell me they'd reviewed the x-rays and actually uh, it's, it's, it's been broken the whole time. The fascinating thing was, even though that's healed, and this is a different break, it's about half an inch away, my ulnar sasamoid, if you're uh, uh, um, uh, biologically inclined, um, even though it's a little bit away from the original break, I was able to see the x-rays from four years ago for the first time it's the first time i've seen the x-ray that the whoever it was the person that overlooked and said no it's not broken holy fuck it's very clearly broken i mean if i'd if i'd have seen that at the time that i might have wanted more of a an explanation as to how it got missed because holy shit that was a big old break so um that one is now pleasingly healed although not fully or uh, nor will it ever healed properly i've got a little thing jutting out of my uh, my thumb small price to pay for a, a a great story right folks so um anyway the point is broke the thumb stupid blue kind of half arm cast over it no longer made of plaster i've not broken something for a while clearly i thought they were still gonna lather a load of plaster of paris all over it but now it's all done with some sort of polymers um but i was all full of excitement when I arrived at the Secret Welsh Comedy Festival on the Friday and I was with a friend who isn't a comic and we were noodling around the place and I was uh, showing off, dear listener. I was showing off and uh, as a result, you know the way you get giddy when you're around someone who thinks you're funny? I was being all giddy and I came up with a sort of walk-by, what I think of as a walk-by gag, you know, a little social joke. If there's, you know, if you're pregnant and everyone keeps mentioning how pregnant you are, you might have a little... Just a little bon mot about how pregnant you are, a little funny thing that you end up accidentally refining over many versions of the same chat. So what I came up with for my broken thumb, which obviously everyone was going to ask me about and refer to, um, I here's my here's my huge hilarious idea I had. I would reach out my hand, my my plastered hand, as if to shake someone's hand, and then like on first meeting them, and then when they went for it, I'd go, "Don't touch it," and pull it back out of the way, right? <laughs> In a kind of a just getting the drop on someone, just noticing I've got a bright blue cast on my hand. Um, uh, you know, it's not hilarious. It did it did provoke a little smile here and there, but the third person on whom I tried it was a fellow comedian who is not given to such jokes, <laughs> and I spent the entire rest of the fucking festival mortified. Didn't see them again and get to like if I'd bumped into them casually, I could have said. Hey, I'm incredibly sorry for doing that. Not to imply that it pissed you off or anything, but I mean, it's not. It definitely wasn't that funny, and it's definitely not your cup of tea. So sorry, <laughs> but I, I didn't bump into them again. So I just spent the rest of the time feeling deeply shameful that uh, I'd effectively, like, through just through wanting to do a little friendly thing, but it didn't have time. They were walking past me too quickly for me to go. Ah, oh, that's a terrible joke, wasn't it? Um, but uh, what I did was effectively do like a shit version of that thing where you put your hand out, your, your normal unbroken hand, you put it out to shake someone's hand and then pull it away like a bellend would do. Do you know what I mean? Like one of those things that if you did it on stage to an audience member, everyone would hate you and rightfully so. It just under the under different circumstances probably felt a bit like that. So if you're someone I did that to or that I've ever upset or offended, uh, I'm deeply sorry and rest assured it will trouble me late at night when I suddenly ping awake in the morning and go, ooh, that wasn't great, was it?
So there we go. Positivity, the, uh, the opportunity to change, and shame. What a cracking little post-amble that was. Speak to you soon. Josh Whittacombe returns next week. Uh, get your questions in on the Facebook group for both Russell Hicks and Andy Parsons. Bye for now. 